Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and thanks for giving us the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known through Christ and in Scripture. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. When it comes to our Bibles, we know there's this very large section the very beginning of it, that sometimes is very contentious, and a lot of people wonder exactly where it fits in. It's the Old Testament, uh, Genesis through Malachi. And in its pages, we learn about the creation, how mankind developed, the choice of Israel, and the history of Israel, and the hope extended uh, for future restoration and redemption, and the fulfillment of God's purposes. And when it comes to how Christians view the Old Testament, we've seen two extremes and you know, trying to figure out perhaps some kind of middle way in between. Uh, one extreme we see come very early in Christian history uh, called the Judaizers. And these were those Jewish Christians who believed that uh, the Old Testament and the covenant between God and Israel is going to be bound forever on everyone and expected that if Christians were going to be saved, and if Gentiles were going to enter into the faith, they were going to have to do so by observing the law of Moses. The other extreme we see uh, about a century later with uh, Marcion, and Marcionism, around 150, which suggested the opposite, that the Old Testament was dramatically inferior, uh, that God revealed in it was not worth serving, and that Jesus came to correct all of that, and that all the influence of the Old Testament should be suppressed and minimalized. Uh, Martian would go so far as to try to remove certain Gospels, to strike certain parts of uh, what Paul wrote as to Jewish, and kind of hold on to uh, one Gospel in some of Paul's letters. And so, these are the extremes. And we should not believe that we should hold to the law. Um, that Paul made very clear was going to meet one fall from grace. On the other hand, uh, it's certainly not worthless. So where should we stand? What should, how should we consider the Old Testament? What should we do with the Old Testament? Uh, how should the Old Testament inform our faith? That's going to be what we'd like to have a conversation about today. We'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, if we can be of any service, please reach out and let us know. Now, there's a lot of groups in Christendom who will use the Old Testament to establish points of doctrine and practice in their Christian faith, and will use the Old Testament to that end. A lot of times there'll be reference to Matthew 5 and 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And they will suggest, well, heaven and earth hasn't passed away, and so therefore the law still has its force. Uh, and yet, we have to understand the language that Jesus is using. He says that he has not come to abolish them, certainly. And he has not come to abolish them. He said he came to fulfill them. And he certainly said that uh, heaven and earth will not pass away, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so when all is accomplished, then that will take place. And he will say that he has fulfilled all the things, that all the things written of him in the law and the prophets are fulfilled when he is raised from the dead. And so he comes to fulfill. He comes to embody that message. And we see this exemplified also in, in Paul's writings. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, when trying to explain how God was able to bring the Gentiles in, he says that, he, he kind of uses the illustration, 
whether or not he's consciously doing so, it certainly works. Uh, the boundary centers of, of the uh, court of the Gentiles in the temple complex. Uh, the temple complex in Jerusalem is a series of... Um, you get ever so closer to the Holy of Holies, and there's kind of courts, because there's different walls that are fencing it off. And there's the court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of the men, holy place, most holy place. And so there's the wall of the court of Gentiles, and any Gentile who would pass beyond this point would be cut off and killed. Uh, that's what Paul is, in fact, accused of in Acts 21, that he brought uh, a Gentile into a temple complex where the Gentiles could not go. And so he uses that illustration there, in um, verse 14, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's seeing in this, this illustration, you know, the, the Gentiles were maintained uh, a separation from God. They could only get so close to God uh, because of the of this commandments and ordinances. And Jesus took that aside. And that's how he's able to make one man out of Jewish and Gentile together. And the only thing that was really keeping them separate is the Torah, the law of Moses as understood. Uh, in Colossians 2, 13 through 17, uh, there's a little bit more vaguer with Colossians in terms of what does Paul mean exactly when he talks about the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands that he nailed on the cross and in this way triumphed over the powers and principalities. Um, however, we cannot say that it is less than the law because of the conclusion. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what Paul's making clear here is that there's no reason to say you are sinning because you are not observing a Sabbath or a new moon festival or something else in, in, in Judaism because uh, those are a shadow of the substance, the substances in Christ. And what God has done in Christ has been to set that aside. So it's something that's not in our way. And of course in Hebrews 7-9, through 9, uh, the Hebrews author goes in great detail about how Jesus could not be a priest on earth because of the priesthood of, of Aaron and Levi, but he is made a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a, a superior priesthood, a greater priesthood, because he doesn't have to offer up animals over and over again that never really perfect the, the conscience of the worshiper, but he's able to offer himself up. And he doesn't have to do it all the time, he does it once, and it's a con has continual uh, a power and efficacy. And this is how he is able to establish this new covenant that uh, Hebrews author talks about and appeals to back in Jeremiah 31. And in this new covenant, there is a forgiveness of sins that just was not possible under the old covenant. And so what Jesus does is he institutes the new covenant. And that by necessity means a laying aside or a setting aside of the old covenant. That it has now been made old and it is passing away, as Hebrews author says in Hebrews 8, uh, 13 and 14. And this gets us to uh, what happens if we would hold on to that covenant, especially for those of us who are not of Israel. Um, if we are not of the physical nation of Israel, we are among the nations. Uh, what happens if we hold firm to the law? Well, that's exactly what Paul's concerned about the Galatian Christians. And he says, uh, For freedom Christ has set us free in Galatians 5.1. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who will be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. 
It's a really strong statement there, that you have fallen from the grace of Christ, that you've exchanged freedom for enslavement. And that is why the law cannot be bound as a basis upon which to do anything that we cannot appeal to. We do this because it says so under the law of Moses. Uh, that the, the appeal must be based on this is what is authorized through what God has done in Jesus. Now, we might find uh, Old Testament parallels and certainly can use those to exemplify. We can learn things, as we're going to see. Uh, Paul will constantly make reference to, as it says under the law, but he does so as reinforcement. He doesn't do so to say we do this because it was that way under the law. So everything in the Christian age goes back to Christ and gets its authority from Christ. So if we're not supposed to, you know, go back to the Old Testament to find out why we're supposed to do the things we do, or how we do the things we do, what should we do with it? Well, in the New Testament, we have uh, many passages that talk about what we do with the Old Testament. In Romans 15, uh, Paul declares that um, Christ did not please himself, for as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. Now notice that Paul, kind of that's an aside really, uh, he's been talking about how Christians are to uh, work with one another and, and to suffer for one another. And so if he's, he's using this quotation from the Psalms, and uh, he says, and using from that quotation, see, uh, we see this encouragement, that the reproaches of you fell upon me. That's why Jesus didn't please himself. That is why we cannot please ourselves, but to seek to please our neighbor. That he's using that passage as reinforcement. And we see that frequently, that there is supposed to be the encouragement of the scriptures. This is who God is. This is how God works with people. This is how people are to work with God. And there's a lot of encouragement from the example uh, of what God has done through Israel, uh, through the hope that sustained and nourished Israel, and uh, the patience that needed to be established. Uh, that there's encouragement in those stories, that we can learn a lot. And a faith that doesn't look back to the Old Testament to see the stories of the people of God and to understand the people of God as our ancestors in the faith. Uh, very much... Um, very, very diminished and very, very impoverished. In Galatians chapter 3, 15 through 16, and Paul, again, trying to make sense of this, talks about the, the is it, is it pedagogos, the, the tutor, the, uh, the, the instructor, the schoolmaster. Uh, that term, the pedagogue, was the slave who would either be the one instructing the, 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 this child or would be the one to take the child to the instructor and back. And it's a really interesting illustration there. Um, and we need to be careful about it because Paul does use that in the, in the first person plural, uh, that it was ours, and he's bringing the Galatian Christians into this. And it can be understood that way in the sense that even though the Galatians uh, who were Gentiles were not in uh, Israel, that still that was out there and they could have learned about it. But I think the general message of that is not to be understood as for us today. We, we said, okay, well, the law was our schoolmaster until we would learn of Christ. Well, uh, as today, in the 21st century, we can learn of Christ from our youth. Uh, there, there is no need for that schoolmaster in that sense anymore. That he's very much using this in this contextual period when, in fact, before the year 30, you needed the law to be that instructor because otherwise you wouldn't have that understanding. And when you understand it that way, it makes sense, right? Uh, one of the things about Jesus and what Jesus has done is that 
on its own, it seems very weird and bizarre to us in modern age. Um, why did he have to die on a cross? Why is he seen as a lamb? Why is he a sacrifice? All of this stuff comes out of the deep logic of the Torah and the idea of the sacrifice and of atonement and of the temple and of the presence of God and the place where heaven and earth intersect, all of which comes out of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, and the story of Israel. And the New Testament authors never divorce themselves from that story. And so you do need to understand a lot of things about the uh, covenant between God and Israel to understand the framework in which uh, the New Testament is operating. Uh, because if you don't, it's going to lead to very bad ends. Uh, resurrection talk is one big one, where a lot of people have fallen prey to an overly spiritualized, uh, not at all biblical view of resurrection because they have uh, been seduced by the Gnostics who kind of didn't, didn't like the Old Testament either uh, and have not anchored themselves in how resurrection was understood in Second Temple Judaism, which was very much the reanimation, reconstitution of the physical body. Uh, so that's one of those illustrations where if we get too far away from the Jewish context in which all of this comes about, and if we forget that Jesus lived and died as a Second Temple uh, Galilean uh, Jewish male, uh, we can we get ourselves in trouble. That that we understand that there is a sense in which, yes, if we're going to understand the faith, we need to understand in terms of what came before, but to understand that we have moved beyond that as well. That God has gone beyond that. A very important part of that story. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, uh, and even going back to verse 15, where Paul, very famous passage about Scripture, where Paul says that um, from childhood, in verse 15, you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Uh, does he have only Old Testament scripture in mind? Well, he's already referred to scripture in terms of what Jesus said, uh, in what ref referred to in Luke. Uh, so there's already an idea that Paul has that Jesus's words recorded in the Gospels are scripture. Um, but we see verse 15 especially where talking about what Timothy would have known as a youth. And as a youth, Timothy would have known the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is certainly primary in what Paul looks at as scripture. And when you see, as the scripture says, throughout his writings, it's primarily uh, looking at the Old Testament. And so he sees that, look, there's great value here. It equips you for every good work. It, 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 it teaches you what to expect. And of course, that's why when he teaches about Jesus, he doesn't say, here's God doing this new thing that came out of nowhere that uh, has no basis in anything. He says, uh, God has fulfilled the promises he made to our fathers. He has done this in Christ. He has done it in a new, fresh, and unexpected way. He has done this so he has revealed this mystery uh, through what has happened and to us through the Spirit is something that we wouldn't have put together the way that it actually came out to be, but it is the fulfillment of what was written. And, and that's whenever we're talking about the Old Testament, there's always that continuity, discontinuity going on. And it's very easy to emphasize the discontinuity. And we need to make sure there's discontinuity because there is a distinction in the covenant between the covenant between God and Israel and the covenant between God and all mankind in Christ. But yet, we should not overstate the discontinuity to override the continuity. And the continuity is the scripture is the same. And, that the, and we have the prophet here. We see this also in Hebrews 11. Uh, that Hebrews 11... We have this, this hall of faith, right? Where uh, by faith, we talk, he talks about what, what happened with uh, Abel and Enoch and 
Noah and Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, all of these heroes of faith, even into uh, the period of time of the Maccabees, uh, where we where he's making almost unambiguous references to events described in the books of Maccabees. Uh, so what he's really doing is he's 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 looking at the uh, great cloud of witnesses as the people of God. And this is one of those things that's consistent throughout. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks to the Corinthian Christians, who are very much mostly Gentile. And he says that our ancestors uh, passed through the sea, uh, but they died in the wilderness. And he's talking about the Exodus. And he says, plural, that our ancestors. And he's trying to get the Corinthians to understand Israel as their spiritual ancestors. Even in Galatians, where he's making the strongest case he can, about the discontinuity, that you cannot hold to the law and and not fall from grace. He also says that the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus because he is the seed through which uh, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul's conclusion there is not that the promise to Abraham has been nullified, but that the promise to Abraham is by faith, to children of faith, and therefore by faith you are children of Abraham. It is not a way to say, well, we don't worry about Abraham anymore. Instead, it's saying, look, Abraham didn't receive this by the law. He didn't receive it by circumcision. He received it through faith. And those who share the faith of Abraham are the descendants of Abraham. He instead uh, challenges that it's always about physical genealogy. And so he wants you to see the points of connection. He wanted the Galatian Christians to see themselves as spiritual children of Abraham, to see that they are the children of Abraham, maybe not in a biological sense, but in a very real sense. And therefore, to understand the story of Israel as the story of the people of God. Um, it be really good to bring that language back, the people of God. Because people of God can be in, you know, 1500 B.C., the descendants of Abraham. It can be in 1000 B.C., the Israelites. It can be in 1000 A.D., Christians. Because it's the people of God, the people who God has called to himself, and who belong to God, and who seek to accomplish his purposes. And it helps us to maintain that continuity. We can see what the Psalms are that way. The Psalms are God speaking through David, the sons of Korah and others, uh, to give voice to the people of God. And that's how we can appropriate those messages as well. So there's a lot more continuity there. But yet in Hebrews 11, he will go through all these stories of faith. And as if to make sure his audience doesn't feel small in comparison, he says, and yet despite all they've gone through, they did not receive what was promised that they would not be made perfect without us because we have received the fulfillment in Christ. And that's just really powerful. A really powerful conclusion of that to show that we have our place in this story as well. And so, we look at the question, what do we do with the Old Testament then? We look at the Old Testament and we need to understand the Old Testament on on. on certain levels, if you want to look at it, or through certain interpretive lenses. And to understand that, uh, just like when you're going to um, the eye doctor and you and you get to see things it, it, with different lenses and, and, and things look a little differently, and to understand that for us to get a full perspective, we're going to have to look at it from these different viewpoints and different angles. 
uh, we can look at passages and uh, we need to understand the Old Testament first and foremost in terms of the message written to the original audience. We need to also think about in terms of what it might mean in terms of what God would do in Christ and also what it might mean for us beyond and how we can apply it today. It's really important that we do all of these because we, we get tripped up when we don't. So, for instance, we look at the immediate application. You can look at um, any passage in the, in the Old Testament. We can look at Jonah and the fish in Jonah chapter 1. Okay, uh, Jonah was in the fish, and it helps us understand how Jonah got to be where he is. Um, we make much of it, but in the story, that is secondary to what's going to happen in Jonah 3 and 4. But for Christians, uh, in Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the victory going to be in the earth for three days as Jonah was in the fish for three days. And so that's really powerful, right? Now, what does it mean for us today? Well, there's faith lessons we can get about uh, running to Tarshish and, and, and what that can mean. But uh, the likelihood of us getting swallowed by a fish and then vomited out on dry land is very little. Uh, but you look at another passage, for instance, you look in uh, the prophets especially. And it's very tempting to kind of eliminate the early Israelites uh, and to just make it about us. And so this is how you get this wealth or maybe not wealth, this, this, this whole line of interpretation that looks at Old Testament prophecies and tries to figure out how it relates to the early 21st century. And it's completely missed the fact that for the prophet, he's speaking to his people at his time. And when you understand it first in terms of the people at the time, it gives you the interpretive key to understand how it might have later application. And in, in the moment, it's always looking at how Israel is betraying its God and the hope of restoration that's going to come. And that hope of restoration is always mediated through Jesus. It doesn't come on its own. It's mediated through Jesus. And that is something that is why so many in dispensational premillennialism just don't seem to have any room for the church or, or what God has been doing for a longer time than he was dealing with Israel. Because they have missed that whatever restoration was going to come to Israel is going to be done through the Christ. Uh, for the second, when we look at uh, what it means for Jesus, we can go and look at... Um, Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, where, you know, Jonah's praying to God for deliverance, and it's very specific to Jonah in that circumstance. And again, we could we can look in, and draw some conclusions that when we are in a position of distress, we might have a similar uh, feeling, or in Israel, it might have a similar feeling. Uh, we can imagine that maybe Jesus felt that way while he was in the earth for three days, maybe? Uh, but we can use it to praise God for salvation in, in turbulent times. We must remember that not necessarily every specific passage in the Old Testament is going to have a direct reference to Jesus. Uh, and Psalm 22 would be a great third example, where we have a, a message that David has uh, for the people of God in their distress to cry out to God, and then a turning, because in the middle of the psalm it turns, that all of a sudden there is deliverance and a proclamation of deliverance. And of course, for Jesus, Jesus calls this out when he's on the cross. Eloah, Eloah, lemma sabachthani, in Matthew 27, 46, is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first line of Psalm 22. Um, and for us, it's, where, it's exactly kind of what it is for Israel. And, and there's not necessarily always going to be an immediate application for us. I mean, First Chronicles has all these genealogies in it. And uh, you can learn some stuff from it. It's interesting to make the connections. But uh, exactly what that means for our faith, beyond the fact that it was very important that they had genealogical lists, is, is, is not nearly as known. And in fact, a warning about that. That's why Paul in First Timothy has to warn them uh, about the false teachers who make much of genealogies and, and myths and fables. That you can make way too much out of some of these things that uh, really are details.
And and this is where we can see this also in Numbers chapter 1, right? You have all the numbers of all the Israelites. It's interesting. Uh, what does it mean for Jesus? Not a whole lot. What does it mean for us? Honestly, not a whole lot. Um, so that's what the, it is the Old Testament. That it, There's no one-size-fits-all. That we need to look at it through different interpretive lenses. We have these different prisms that we can look at it through uh, to understand what's going on in context and to allow it to live in its context, to see how it makes reference to what God is accomplishing in Jesus. Uh, and beyond that, even in between, what it might mean between Israelites during the monarchy versus in the Second Temple period as well. Uh, and also, finally, of course, what we can make of it uh, as looking at the history and the heritage of the people of God. So, we've looked at what we have with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is a great value. We don't go and say, we are going to do this because in this Old Testament passage it says to do it. Because that's getting uncomfortably close to going back under the bondage of the law. Uh, there's nothing that we do that we appeal to directly for the law. The law can be used as a reinforcement when we have basis of authority in Christ. But that doesn't mean the Old Testament is just this you know, really long appendage that we don't talk about or don't study. And it's really a tragedy how impoverished many Christians are in their understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament because it, it has not gone much beyond what they learned as a child in Bible classes and the attendant childlike understanding of such events. And a lot of preachers don't feel as comfortable in it because it's a very different world and they wonder about its relevance and applicability because it's not you know, the New Testament. Uh, but there's a lot going on there, and there's a reason why Jesus and the apostles continue to mine what is said by God in the Old Testament to establish what's going on and how people are to live in Christ, that through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And we can appreciate that, yes, Jesus has fulfilled and embodied all that God had promised and planned through Israel and has brought to the fulfillment that we can now live within it and it can help us and inform us in how we are to live as the people of God and to appreciate the, the travails, the foibles, and the successes of our ancestors in the faith and that we can do more effectively uh, able to glorify God. And so therefore, let us indeed uh, make sure we have an understanding of what has happened in Israel and how that can affect our faith and to glorify God in Christ in all things. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for what you've done for us, Father, and all the blessings of life that you've given us for your love and care, for your creation that you've given us, for your covenant loyalty that you've expressed toward us, all that you've given us. We know that everything we have in our comes from you. We're thankful, Father, for uh, Jesus and for all that he has done and for the hope and salvation we have in him and for uh, the Spirit and the Word and that we come to know you and, and all of what you have done in the past. Uh, we pray, Father, for uh, all those who are ill, that you would heal them. We pray for those who are in distress and pain and grief, that you would comfort and strengthen them. We pray that your justice and righteousness would flow in our land, and that the powers and principalities would uh, do all things to glorify and honor you and your purposes. Uh, we pray, Father, the, that we may come to a better understanding of what you have accomplished through Israel, that you would give us uh, a spirit of wisdom and understanding to properly discern how we are to understand what you have done through Israel and how we are to appropriately apply it to our faith and also yet not go beyond what is written. Uh, we pray that we would draw great strength and encouragement from uh, what you have done through Israel and that we would come to understand you better through uh, those stories and that we would understand ourselves as uh, the people of God in that long and great story. 
uh, we pray, Father, that we would be able to participate in that story and that uh, we would be able to glorify you in all things. And we pray that your son would return soon, that we would share with him in the resurrection of life. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're so glad that you've joined us. Uh, love to hear your thoughts about the Old Testament. You know, What have you learned about the Old Testament? Uh, what struggles do you have understanding it? Uh, where have you seen people kind of go wrong with it? What have you really gained from it? Uh, would love to hear your thoughts about other questions or anything you have going on. Please subscribe to us where you found us here. Let us know in the comments. Also, please reach out to us at VenturesChrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, if there's any other service, please let us know. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.